So Jay, ever since Al and I covered Generation X number 32, I've been thinking about the circus of crime. Yeah, I, I can see that. I like those guys. They seem really low-key as evil comic book circuses go. Oh, absolutely, Miles. No prisoners, no world domination. They just hypnotize audiences and steal their stuff. I'm honestly kind of surprised they even count as supervillains. Well, they've got powers, or at least Ringmaster does. Wait, since when does Ringmaster have powers? I thought his hat was some kind of hypnosis machine. Oh, it is, but then he got his eyes surgically altered so he could hypnotize people with a glance. Efficient. Yeah, it was all part of his plan to... Up his theft game? Run for president. What?! I'm Jay Edgerton. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 406 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome back once again to the past. That's right. This week we are continuing our coverage of the Negative One flashback issues. And we realized that we mentioned there were eight of these. There are technically nine. One of them, which we're not going to be covering, is X-Man number minus one. Nothing against Nate Gray. Well, I mean, okay, occasionally some things against Nate Gray. But in this case, that issue's kind of different. All the other flashback issues are a big part of Earth-616 continuity, or at least some part of Earth-616 continuity. And X-Man Minus One is very much an Age of Apocalypse story. It's part of Nate Gray's childhood, it's about Age of Apocalypse Mr. Sinister, so perfectly good story, but doesn't really fit what we're doing right now. Maybe if we return to the AOA at some point, we'll uh, throw that in as well. Or if we do more in-depth coverage of X-Men. We also found out, after recording last episode, that Flashback, the event, you know, all of the Minus Ones that Marvel did one month in 1997, that was actually inspired by an X-Book. Right, um, that was Generation X number 17, where the fight between Skin Chamber and the Executioner had Stan Lee as its narrator and commenter. So Flashback Month is yet another thing for which we can blame Scott Lobdell. <laughs> yes, indeed. And I guess Stan Lee indirectly, since that was the main part that carried over to Flashback uh, Month. I don't know, Jay, what do you think about the Stan Lee framing stories? Like, they seem intrusive occasionally, sometimes they're amusing, I don't know. They feel deeply, deeply pointless to me. I think I may be inclined to be a little more charitable, just because I grew up watching old Marvel cartoons, specifically Spider-Man and his amazing friends, where Stan Lee would open every single episode with a bit of narration, so for me that's just kind of like a Marvel feel. And see, again, I came into this late enough, and when enough existing conversation, you know, was around, that I never really had that, like, Stan Lee mythic figure hero worship thing. Like, he doesn't... He feels, his his cameos feel awkward to me in ways that I, I don't think they do to people who grew up with more steeped in sort of the Marvel mythos. That makes a lot of sense, yeah. Um, especially, I think, because some of the iffier aspects of Stan Lee, like him potentially taking the limelight from his co-creators and stuff, well, more than potentially, uh, that wasn't really known at the time. I want to take a second, actually, to plug um, Josie Reisman's biography of him um, that came out. I think last year, my sense of time is iffy. It came out during the pandemic. It was excellent. Um, it's called True Believer. And we will stick a link to that in the visual companion of this episode. Sweet. I need to read that myself. Yeah. 
But as far as things we did read, as we said, listeners, we have four more flashback issues to tell you about. So, Jay, how do you want to do this? Should we just keep doing them alphabetically? Should we do a different order? I mean, why fix it if it ain't broke? All right, alphabetically it is. And because we're an X-Men podcast, that's weighted toward the latter half of the alphabet, which means we'll be starting with Wolverine number minus one, A Whiff of Sartre's Madeleine. Written by Larry Hama, penciled by Carrie Nord, inked by Scott Hanna, colored by Joe Rosas, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft, and Emerson Miranda. Now, something I didn't know going into this, but that you pointed out in your notes, is that the title of this issue is itself an error. It is, yeah. So the title refers to the Madeleine cookie that the narrator recovers childhood memories by tasting in the first volume of Proust's Remembrance of Things Past. So, yeah, Proust. The title references Sartre, and that's an easy mistake to make. I mean, they do have identical mustaches and overalls, but one wears a red hat and shirt and the other wears a green hat and shirt. Like, I, I get it. <laughs> Proust is the one that sometimes jumps higher than Sartre. But the weird part was they had to introduce, like, a second princess to be Proust's love interest. Oh, yeah, and then you get Wa Proust and Wa Sartre. It's a whole thing. But I don't know where to go from there. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, I think I think there's 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 nowhere to go but but into into a pipe that emerges with Stanley's intro, which here is at least mercifully short. It is indeed. In this case, Stan the man, the line cook, he's he's a line cook at the uh, single runway airport snack bar uh, somewhere in Canada, where Logan in the past is having lunch with Heather and James Hudson. Uh, Jay, we should probably remind people who the Hudsons are. Um, they are the founders of Alpha Flight. They have an open marriage of which Wolverine is regularly a part. I'm going to say read between the panels, but it's kind of almost canonical. Okay, so they were the couple who found Wolverine running around naked and very confused in the woods in Canada, um, liked his vibe and brought him home. <laughs> like, literally, that is his origin story <laughs> with regards to Alpha Flight. Basically. But yeah, they're, they're good buds, they're family. And in this case, the Hudsons are here to see Logan off because he's going to fly to Washington, D.C. from, you know, Canada to meet someone who might know about where his adamantium skeleton and claws came from. His pilot, because this is flashback and everything overlaps with everything, is actually Ben Grimm before he became the thing due to cosmic rays. And Ben Grimm is the source of the most important secret origin in this entire comic book. Exactly. He calls Logan a knucklehead for the first time, and Logan likes the sound of it, and we'll hear that forever from now on. Yep, that's that's where it came from, and you can stop reading right there. But if you were to continue, you would see Logan getting to Washington, D.C., and heading into the U.S. Department of, of Agriculture, Annex B. If that sounds familiar, that's because years later, after the Weapon X project is shut down, its leader, the Professor, will use this place as cover to continue his evil work. So, for now, speaking of evil work, Wolverine is being watched by a number of factions. Um, spies from S.H.I.E.L.D. have their eyes on them, and so do agents of HYDRA. Yeah, you remember that sneaky-peaky stuff that Logan referenced in the Kitty Pride Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. miniseries? There's a lot of sneaking and peeking going on right here. How, however, could I forget that charming phrase? I love it so much. Hey, this is a Larry Hama comic. That was a Larry Hama comic. And uh, in fact, we will still get some excellent Larry Hama dialogue because the scientist that Logan's there to meet, a Dr. Myron McLean, is very skeptical of this random dude that his colleague James Hudson sent him, saying, He has no right foisting delusional vagrants on me. 
To which Wolverine responds, snicking out his claws. These look like delusions to you, bub. It really depends on which movie they're the claws from, because if it's like the early ones, no, but the ones in Origins really just look like they're they're kind of the wireframes, just colored in. I love X-Men Origins Wolverine for so many reasons, and one of them is the truly god-awful CG every time the main character pops his claws, his most defining feature. Oh shit, I just realized that's what these issues feel like. Oh, like X-Men Origins Wolverine? Uh-huh. They play they pay no attention to existing continuity. They're ridiculous. Like and yet they're kind of lovable in their bizarreness. And like they have some genuinely good moments, but also a lot of things that are the functional equivalent of someone jumping a motorcycle through a helicopter and the helicopter exploding. Well, I have nothing bad to say about that. I don't know. We'll, we'll talk more at the end of the episode. I overall really like these issues, uh, but they certainly do have their ups and downs. So Dr. McLean talks about how, well, he doesn't know so much about adamantium. He accidentally created the vibranium steel alloy used for Captain America's shield back in World War II. He's been trying to just reproduce that. But he does know of another metallurgist, a Japanese scientist named Lord Darkwind— which is a pretty sweet name, who created an adamantium skeletal bonding process over in Japan. And if that name sounds familiar to you, that is because Lord Darkwind is Lady Deathstrike's father, and the, this, the fact that his notes on the process were stolen and then used for the adamantium bonding on Logan's skeleton are the source of her ongoing vendetta against Logan. I like that not only is she misplacing her quest for revenge on the guy that received the adamantium, not the people who stole it, but her method of revenge seems to be wanting to take his skeleton away. It's a pretty effective method of revenge. I mean, I can't deny that. But before McLean can talk more about these rumors of where those notes might have gone— in comes a big blonde dude in a suit, cowboy hat, and sunglasses with astonishing mutton chops and a big poofy chin beard. It's Reed Richards. <laughs> I want to see Reed Richards like that. Uh, no, in this case, it is Sabretooth. He has even goofier facial hair than Logan in this comic, and I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, no, it's distinctly goofy, but also distinctly Sabretoothy. Like, he pulls it off in that he is sufficiently horrible to justify its existence he also is very intimidating here and part of that is that he knows all about logan's past but remember at this point in logan's history he knows almost nothing about his own past he doesn't know who this big blonde dude is he does know that he doesn't like him and Sabretooth finds this hilarious for somebody you can't remember me at all you sure have prejudged me some you'd think i came over to your house and ripped your girlfriend's throat out or something which is, of course, precisely what he did in Wolverine number 10, a flashback to Logan's birthday many, many years in the past. Although that's revealed later to probably have been a memory constructed by the Weapon X program, because this is Wolverine's backstory we're talking about. But still, the point is, that's a funny and also really awful thing to say in context. Um, and he, he also references the birthday tradition, wherein Sabretooth celebrates Logan's birthday by trying to kill um, Logan and or his loved ones. You may be the birthday boy, Logan, but I'm the one who gets to blow out your candles. God, I love Larry Hama dialogue. Yeah, and uh, Sabretooth at this point points a gun at Wolverine's head, but they are saved by the bell, by which I mean the cars full of dudes with guns, because both Hydra and S.H.I.E.L.D., both of these uh, spy organizations have sent cars to nab Logan. 
showing some very, very good split-second judgment, Logan jumps into the shield car, uh, which is driven by a pre-eyepatch Nick Fury and Carol Danvers, who will later become Captain Marvel. And speaking of Larry Hama dialogue, oh my god, his Nick Fury is amazing. Like, no, no human being has ever talked like this man, and that's honestly kind of sad oh it's so great so fury's surprised that hey he knows the guy that he's been sent out to find this is his old war buddy logan and he celebrates by offering logan a gift and some words of wisdom here put a lip grip on this stogie it's a havana so we have the origin of the word knucklehead and here we have the origin of logan smoking cigars also the phrase lip grip which I guess is a thing that Nick Fury says here. Uh, Logan will, will later explain this to the Hudsons as follows. The cigar? Some howling Yahoo plugged one into my mug, and it just seemed to fit. I, I don't know if Larry Hama has ever written erotic comics, but I really, really want to hear him writing a character like describing a sexual encounter. As long as he uses the phrase lip grip, I'm fully in favor. Like, I just feel like it would be just the most amazing thing that I had ever read. It would be life-changing. Oh, man. Yeah, Larry Hama just needs to do every genre. I, I appreciate this this concept. Yes. Like, because I, I feel like he's he's got to know, like, this dialogue is so self-consciously goofy. And it's it's one of those, like, you know those issues where, where you see the art and you, like, and you can feel how much fun the artist is mm -hmm. having. That's how I feel about reading, com like, Larry Hama comics. 100%, yeah. But, dialogue aside, so we mentioned that Nick Fury knows Logan. Logan, of course, doesn't know Nick Fury because he doesn't remember anything. What's interesting here is that Carol Danvers has not met Logan. She is seeing this dude for the first time. And that shouldn't be the case because she should remember him from the graphic novel Logan Shadow Society, which takes place in the past of both characters. That actually came out a few months before this, but I guess editorial didn't pass the memo. Again, one of the consistent features of the flashback issues is that they are just riddled with continuity errors. And we've got another one coming up who emerges just in time to take out a Hydra car with a rocket launcher. This is Black Widow. Because the USSR has also been watching Logan, and she doesn't appear to remember Logan either, although they and Captain America teamed up in Uncanny X-Men number 268. That said, it's reasonable that she is basically playing it secretive, but she's also someone whose memory was regularly rewritten during her era working for the USSR, so we could also attribute it to that. It's hard to say, but I kind of wish they'd done more with this. I kind of wish on every single page, some new spy from some new organization just jumped onto the scene, having also been watching Logan. Yeah, the clown car aspect of this plot is definitely its best feature. It's really fun, and we know that Larry Hama writes a good kind of mysterious past, lots of spycraft type of Wolverine story, and so I love the fact that he's just leaning into that with this one-shot. So finally, our first antagonist, Sabretooth, catches up. He is he's driving, is it a red VW Beetle with flames painted on the front? I don't know what kind of car it is, but that paint job is wonderful. It does fit his stupid facial hair and cowboy hat perfectly. It's not a shape of car that you would expect to have flames painted on. Anyway, I, I don't remember I don't remember the exact make, but like that's that that awkward juxtaposition really stood out to me. <laughs> it's great. I think part of why Sabretooth works in this story is that he is kind of goofy between his facial hair and his car and stuff, but he is murderous and strong enough that that works. Like, the fact that he just doesn't give a shit if people take him seriously because he knows he's just going to kill them anyway works. 
This is something that I think is very, very hard to do. It's a balance that's really hard to strike. And the only other character I can think of who's pulled it off this well is um, the animated Mark Hamill voice Joker. That's actually a really good parallel. Yeah, that's not a parallel I would have thought to have made, but I think you're right. Like, this is, this. I don't know that this is necessarily a Sabretooth who would copyright fish, but it's the same basic feel of, of like, a character who is so dangerous that his absurdity is you know, becomes part of that unpredictable danger. 100%. And he is he is still determined to finish his, his you know, mission. He may be protected by the feds on your side of the street, but the feds on my side of the street want this loose cannon to drop dead and rot. Fortunately for Logan, he's fast enough to take Sabretooth down. He says, well, maybe he'll someday he'll punch a claw through Sabretooth's brain, but not now. That will, in fact, happen in Wolverine number 90, right before the Age of Apocalypse. And then Logan steals Sabretooth's hat. So we had the origin of Knucklehead, the origin of Logan smoking cigars, and now the origin of the cowboy hat that Logan will later give to Jubilee when he rides off on his motorcycle after Fatal Attractions. Do you think it's the same hat, or do you think he's just continued to get hats in that style? This being the Marvel Universe, and continuity being what continuity is, I'm gonna go ahead and say same hat. Like, why go for the realistic answer when you can go for the fraught-with-symbolism answer? So, Nick Fury decides to let Logan go, as does Madame Hydra, the leader of Hydra, from afar— She's hoping that Logan will eventually get all dark and evil and eventually take out her enemies, so it's best just to let him do his thing. And that kind of will happen many, many years later in the Enemy of the State storyline. In a great bit of continually looping continuity, this Madame Hydra may or may not actually be Silver Fox, Logan's ex-girlfriend who may or may not actually have been killed by Sabretooth. Oh, it's a whole thing. The unreliable narrator thing, I know we joke about how convoluted it is in Wolverine's past, but Larry Hama did it really well. Like... Turning it into a spy thriller, that's what makes that work. That makes the unreliability of Logan's backstory a feature rather than a bug. So there we go. With that fun Larry Hama pen's tale, we are one down, three to go. Let's dive right into a very different issue, X-Factor number minus one, A Summer's Tale. This is written by Howard Mackey, penciled by Jeff Matsuda, inked by Art Taber, colored by Glynis Oliver, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And I mentioned unreliable backstories, and if there if there ever was, you know, a nest of those, it was the Summers family, as we know. And this this issue is Summers family bullshit, and thus is is just yet yeah, deeply up my alley. So wow, that sounded worse than I <laughs> Um not like that. And we get we get here um Stanley who is is dressed like teens these days. Uh, and four whole pages of this. It's kind of fun. I assume he's supposed to be dressed like Wild Child, who dresses like teens these days. Trademark, copyright, patent pending. I don't know. But I am amused that there is a romantic scene of Forge and Mystique reluctantly admitting their feelings, and then Stanley just jumps in front of them and uh, proceeds to yammer on and then yell at the rest of the team standing nearby to never trust Sabretooth, that guy that's with them. And I love the responses as they say one after the other. You mean, like, really? We sort of don't, I guess. Well, hardly ever. Maybe. <laughs> it's fun. But this is not a story about Sabretooth. This is a story about Havoc's childhood, and it is completely goddamn bonkers. Um, it also starts with a continuity error or a rewrite, changing the surname of his adoptive family from Masters, which it is in his first appearance, to Blanding. 
So, so we're off on the right foot, clearly. Anyway, the Blandings used to have two kids, uh, Todd and Haley, and Todd the Elder was everyone's favorite. He was also the star quarterback of some sort of neighborhood intramural football team. Um, and we know it's got to be that because we know Alex is 13 in this story and he's on the team, but there are also people on it who appear to be in their early 20s. So um, I'm not quite sure what's happening here. Uh, anyway, Todd died in a car crash uh, when someone threw a rock at his car, and the Blandings adopted Alex as sort of a replacement. They mixed him up with Todd a lot, although they're clearly trying to do so less. Like, this family is just so incredibly, incredibly traumatized and sad. And um, Alex is also incredibly traumatized and sad, and and nothing, nothing is okay in this comic. Nothing. Oh, man, there's this early scene where Alex gets called in for lunch and his adoptive mom's like, I made your favorite, a mayo and sardine sandwich. And Alex says it's not his favorite. And there's just this moment where this look of shock comes over her face and then she just collapses in tears. And it's kind of ridiculous, but it's also like super sad immediately. Yeah, um, and then Mr. Blanding forces Alex to be quarterback on this mysterious intramural football team, even though he's very bad at it. Um Meanwhile, Mr. Sinister is literally lurking in the bushes. Like, he's standing, he's, he's lurking in the bushes. Like, there's, I, there's no other way to describe what he's doing. It's so funny. He's just standing there in the shrubbery talking about how it's time to test Alex's mettle. And he's going to do this via um, a gang of bullies who are older kids, but they are they look like adults. They look like they're in their 20s, um, who are led by a guy named Vince. And they have it in for Alex because he gets to be quarterback of this football team. Um, and it's, 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 there, there's, first of all, if this were a movie, Vince would be played by Christian Slater. I decided that really early on. But, um, second, they're, like, they're clearly adults. I'm kind of reminded of, uh, Endless Mike, the bully from the Adventures of Pete and Pete, who was clearly way the fuck older than either Pete. Yeah, but, like, he, he wasn't that much older. I'm kind of reminded there of Wet Hot American Summer, where the joke is that all the actors playing teenagers are, like, in their 30s and 40s. Yeah, no, these these guys seem similarly cast, although they're drawings, so there's really less of an excuse. And they corner and are about to attack Alex with baseball bats, but Haley, this is his adoptive older sister, single-handedly drives them off with jump kicks to the head. It's really impressive. No one ever comments on it. Haley's great. Right. Like, did she just play a lot of the side-scrolling Ninja Turtles arcade games and decide that it was more fun to jump kick everywhere than to walk? It's just not remarked upon it. It is like a many feet in the air, perfect flying kick. How did she learn how to do this? Dude, Haley Blanding lives her life like it's a side-scroller. Never look back, jump kick everywhere. Punch oil barrels and walk over the turkeys that come out of them. Basically. So I, I will totally go to Matt, the Matt for Haley because she is, she is first of all, like the character who is most sympathetic to Alex, but second, she's kind of awesome. And like, she's never, ever, ever been even mentioned again in continuity outside of this, um, which is a shame because I feel like she would be a great, like minor recurring character. Oh, Haley Blanding and or Masters, you deserved better. One jump kick at a time. And Alex, meanwhile, has started feeling weird. He's feeling overheated and like his body is full of raging energy, which Haley understandably writes off as puberty. I always uh, loved the gag in Runaways where young Molly Hayes talks about the strange feelings that she's getting and all of her friends think that she's just having her first period. So that night, Sinister, this time as Essex, like wearing a suit rather than his, his full cape, um, convinces Vince to kidnap Alex. And uh, Vince's gang also nabs Haley kind of by accident when she attempts to intervene. But Sinister's line is is just 
Again, pretty delightful. Stir the pot for me, Vincent. Let us see what genetic wonderments will arise from young Alex Summers. Presumably he himself will be observing from a handy shrub. So they take Alex and Haley to a warehouse, tell them they have to find their way out while Vince and company hunt them. So this is like miniature version of the most dangerous game, or as I'd like to think of it, the most dangerous mini game. I appreciate that this factory appears to be an empty crate factory. Like there's just crates everywhere. And I don't think anything's in them. There was a great Kung Fu movie called Chocolate, uh, which where every fight takes place in a very different setting. And one of them was a straight up crate factory. It was amazing. So many shattering crates. Well, this is, this is a warehouse, not a factory. Oh, well, that's where the crate factory puts all of its empty crates after it makes them. And Alex, through this, is feeling more and more off. Um, he, he's burning up. He feels like his head is about to explode. And when they finally get out, Vince is waiting with a gun and admits that he caused Todd's accident by throwing the, the rock at his car. Okay, so Vince is a confirmed murderer. Got it. But let's talk about escalation. First, he had a bat. Then he had a knife. Now he has a pistol. What's next? A freaking bully rocket launcher? I mean, if he joins Friends of Humanity, probably. Oh, yeah. Yeah, good point. Or if he joins Humanity's Last Stand, we'll give him a, a racist mech. So he may or may not shoot Haley at this point. It is extremely unclear. Um, and he declares that he's going to next go and kill the rest of the Blanding family. And Haley tells Alex that Alex needs to go stop him. And it's the best way to get out from under Todd's shadow. And also that he's being given a chance to do what he couldn't do for his birth parents, which is a pretty fucked up thing to tell a traumatized child. Wait, are we saying that Christopher and Catherine Summers, their plane didn't crash because of a spaceship from the Shi'ar Empire, but it in fact was an accident caused by Vince the murder bully? I'm gonna go with yes. God damn it, Vince! Anyway, they, they go up to the Blanding's house, where Vince is about to shoot the natural gas tank and blow up the house. And Alex's powers go off, and they incinerate Vince, and they don't touch the natural gas tank, which is surprising and very lucky, but they, they very, very graphically um, kill Vince. Like, he, he's just got a smoldering skeleton left. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's rough. I would say uh, Alex is going to have some therapy bills from that, but let's be real. Alex Summers has therapy bills from literally every event in his entire life. Considering that as far as we know, the only therapist he has ever seen was Doc Sampson, and that only briefly, and with the knowledge that he was going to be reporting back to Val Cooper, I think that a lot of Havoc's therapy bills are are more like presumptive therapy bills. I mean, yeah, like if I I, I would it would be nice to to see him get his shit together and, and get actual mental health support because obviously he's had a rough time of it. Oh, if only his jump kicking sister could have saved him from this. Well, Haley is very proud of him incinerating Vince, um, but she decides they need to not, they need to keep this a secret and basically try to forget this ever happened. At which point, Sinister pops out of the bushes and is like, yes, that's right. You are going to forget that it ever happened. You're a mutant, but I'm going to put a genetic lock on your powers and make you both forget that this ever happened and we'll all go on with our lives happily. So a couple things here. Um, first off, I do like this in the context of 1997 X-Factor, because at this point, Havoc is, of course, leading the new Brotherhood of Mutants, not evil mutants, but the Brotherhood of Mutants. And they're sort of defined by their cold, utilitarian attitude toward protecting people. And so the idea that as long as you can protect people, you do whatever it takes, originating with something so far in Alex's past, I like that that ties in. Yeah, yeah, I can buy that. Um and it also provides some context for how late Alex's official manifestation was. Right, the fact that it didn't manifest until well after puberty, because Mr. Sinister was lurking in the bushes and fucking with Alex's backstory. But second thing, 
the reason Sinister rejects Alex here, the reason he doesn't, you know, go on and use him to do terrible things, is that he says he's the inferior Summers brother. That Scott has way better control, so he's going to try to manipulate Scott more. Kind of weird, because Scott, of course, due to a traumatic brain injury, can't control his powers. He has to wear ruby quartz over his eyes, or else he'll blast everything uncontrollably. Alex at least can turn his powers on and off, even if he's not very good at it, which, fair enough, I mean, it's his first time using them, right? So here's my no-prize explanation for this, and it's a very simple one. Okay. Scott can aim. Yeah, fair point, fair point. Alex can at least point his body in a different direction, but you're right, even later, he accidentally almost kills Storm during the Outback era because he's just not precise. Yeah. And, I mean, that's at least implicitly the nature of his powers. Yeah. Or at least the default nature of his powers. And whether it's something that he could overcome with training, um, we don't know. It's something we've seen him overcome with adaptive technology a few times. But that is that is the end of, of, of Alex the Obscure. We are seriously getting to comic levels of a horrible, horrible backstory for Alex Summers. Like, he may not have something completely over the top, like, say, Marrow's backstory, but it's just this continual series of small to moderate miseries. It's I, I maintain that my, my Jude the Obscure joke is, is apt. <laughs> Fair. Uh, listeners, look it up. Um, I maintain also, going out of the end of this, that, that, that my other big takeaway from this remains Haley deserves better. Okay, so Marvel, if you're listening, ongoing series for Haley Blanding Slash Masters and her jump kicks. Speaking of siblings, our next issue is X-Force number minus one, The Brothers Proud Star. This issue is written by John Francis Moore. Yay! Penciled by Adam Polina. Also yay! Inked by Mark Morales, John Holdridge, and Al Milgram. Colored by Marie Javins and Michael Higgins. And lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. So, X-Force is really on a hot streak around this era. And this minus issue continues that hot streak. I really liked it. We open once again with Stan Lee, this time in a 30 or so gallon cowboy hat. Uh, he's playing a guitar for a crowd of cartoon animals that are sort of reminiscent of the creatures in Sabretooth's Hollow Garden in the Danger Room in X-Force a while back. Of course, that was also drawn by Adam Polina. Adam Polina draws amazing, weird cartoon critters. I'm so glad he gets a chance to draw more. And Lee's monologue here is, of course, cowboy um, and ends with the memorable and delightful Excelsior, y'all. Excelsior, y'all, indeed. So, as you might imagine from the title of the issue, this is an issue about Warpath and Thunderbird. Warpath is a member of X-Force these days. Thunderbird was a member of the X-Men in Giant Size X-Men number one and died on a mission almost immediately thereafter. Yeah, he was killed, I believe, on the aftermath of the fight with Count Nefaria. Yup, who uh, is back in New Mutants right now. I love Count Nefaria. At the start of this issue, young Warpath, that's James Proudstar, is almost 12 years old, and he's trying to get his cat, Coyote, out of a tree. And I have an objection here. Jay, you were talking about continuity errors? Well, here's a continuity error. This is a tiger-striped orange kitten. And when we saw Coyote in another dimension, as a spirit vision Warpath was having in the present, Coyote was a talking gray Aristocat-looking thing. And those don't look the same at all. Oh, maybe he's had a series of cats with the same name. Oh, that could be. I mean, I don't know. I know some people do that. That that would just make me sad if I did that. But regardless, here's a cat named Coyote. 
And uh, Coyote jumps down to protect young James because lurking behind James is a giant shadowy werewolf silhouette reaching out for him with long claws like it's the witch from Captain EO, that old 3D Epcot Michael Jackson deep cut that no one will get except for me. I'm going to drop a spoiler here. I was legitimately expecting this to be a red herring. It's not. Oh, yeah, there's an actual werewolf dude after James, for real. Uh, I, I do appreciate, though, that if the werewolf silhouette had spent less time reaching out creepily, he probably would have actually had time to catch James, but he doesn't. And James runs home, followed by Coyote, and runs smack into his older brother, John, the guy who will become Thunderbird, who is freshly back from his honorable discharge from the military. The art is so good here. It's Adam Polina, who, as we know, loves doing little designs behind his panels. So we get this beautiful geometric orange sun behind James's smiling face as he hugs his brother's midsection and just talks so very quickly. I was attacked by this huge ugly monster with huge claws and fangs that caught my knee and then he jumped in his face and I ran away. You don't believe me. Next time you run into any monsters, Runt, tell them your big brother said to leave you alone. Because I'm the only one that gets to pick on you. Their dynamic is so immediately believable and fun. I do love these boys together. Like, they're just so very capital B brotherly, which of course makes it all the more tragic that John, we know, is gonna die, leaving James alone. It also contextualizes a lot of what James does in the aftermath of John's death. Right, because James, well before he was Warpath of X-Force, was also called Thunderbird, he took his older brother's codename, and was on Emma Frost's Hellions, the rival team of the New Mutants. And he was furious with the X-Men. He actually tried to murder Professor X at one point to get revenge for the death of his brother. Oh, but who hasn't? Well, that's fair. I think you and I both have, right? Weekly. And there's a lovely family dinner. We get to know the Proud Stars. Um, you know, over dinner, John talks about leaving the army. <laughs> I've had my fill of taking orders. James replies. Hard to imagine John listening to anybody. And indeed, that'll basically be how John as Thunderbird interacts with Professor X and the X-Men years later. And because it wouldn't be a flashback issue without arbitrary cameos, um, John mentions that the only officer he liked was Thunderbolt Ross. You know, the dude from Hulk. Yup. Who will eventually be American Kaiju. And that night, staying up late, John tells his mom a story that he hadn't before, about how when he was serving the military, lightning hit his helicopter in a storm one night, and he and the pilot escaped on a lifeboat, and it was only the arrival of a great bird of lightning in the sky that signaled the storm was ending and they were going to be safe. Which is a nice little way to explain why John chose the name and the totem of the Thunderbird. When, from what I understand, the Thunderbird is more a legend from Northeast and Great Lakes tribes in North America than the Apache. I am no expert on these things, but that's my understanding. Um, years later, Nyla Rose and Steve Orlando are going to write a one-shot called Giant Size X-Men Thunderbird that was very recent. It was after Thunderbird was resurrected in the Krakoa era. In that, we find out that uh, Thunderbird definitely chose his own superhero name, which, based on this, makes sense. But it was Xavier that chose that very non-Apache costume. And Thunderbird gets a much more Apache-specific costume in the one-shot, and it's really freaking cool. It's actually a great one-shot. I recommend it. Now, his mom's been keeping something from him, too. As it turns out, she has cancer. So the next day, off they go to the Camp Verde Medical Clinic to meet the doctor that their mom has been seeing. And this is a guy who, if you've been listening to recent episodes, you will know the name of, Edwin Martinek. In the past here, he's a young ponytail doctor who doesn't have good news. Their mom's gonna die. And John 
punches a truck almost over when he finds out. Well, she's going to die, but they're going to start with aggressive radiation almost immediately. That's a really important detail. Ah, yes, true. They are definitely going to be treating her here, and we'll get to why. Now, while this is going on, we also see another family driving down I-40 on their vacation to Wacky World. Parents bickering, their daughter wishing she knew how to drive so she could steal a car and get the hell away. This is Tabitha Smith, who will grow up to become Boom Boom and later Meltdown. Yeah, and I love the big, like, wing-cornered sunglasses that she has on her forehead. Like, she already starting to get the vibe she'll later have. Uh, Wacky World, by the way, is the theme park that Risk ran away to in Florida a couple of issues before this in X-Force number 66. Nice little connection there. But on the way, Tabby and her family stop by a roadside carnival, which is where the Proud Star Boys are, after finding out the news about their mom. So they're never going to actually meet, but I love, like, the little subtle overlap. Um, Makes the universe feel more lived in, and I think, like, this issue more than most really feels like it kind of fulfills the mandate of the Minus Ones. I agree, yeah. Like, it, it provides backstory that really does help you understand one of the characters, in this case Warpath, better, but it also has all these little touches that just give so much texture to the Marvel Universe. It also sets up backstory for a character who hasn't appeared yet, but whose name we've heard. That's Michael Whitecloud, who's going to show up shortly hereafter. Before we get to that, though, we've got some more cameos. Right, we've got Chandu the Magician and Ringmaster Maynard Tybalt. Uh, yeah, Tabitha's watching a magic show while her, par- her parents are off being shitty to each other, or her dad and her stepmom. Um and I love that the magic show is just run by two Marvel supervillains incognito, and it's not mentioned that they're supervillains. It's just a nice little touch. Every carnival is just freaking full of evil in the Marvel Universe. What the hell? Those aren't the only supervillains they run into at the carnival, because James wanders into the tent of a blind fortune teller who sees John's upcoming death as an X-Man and decides not to tell James about it, and who's revealed almost immediately to be Destiny, who's also traveling with Mystique. Yeah, yeah, they're part of this carnival, and Mystique vows that after this traumatic experience Destiny just had with this kid and his soon-to-be-killed brother, uh, they need to get out of the carnival and move on to better things, like presumably plotting to murder Senator Kelly. Well, they've been laying low, like, for now, which is why they're basically hiding out here. Now, we mentioned Michael Whitecloud. Um, He and John meet up um, while James is running around watching shows and seeing the fortune teller. Yeah, Michael Whitecloud, of course, in our present coverage, is the guy that ended up revealing what happens to Camp Verde. He is a, an investigative reporter. Uh, he's been targeted multiple times after he's exposed random scientists and supervillains who were exploiting assorted people, in large part the people of Camp Verde. And that's related to the news he has for John. Kind of weird that everybody who's had cancer in the past five years has gone to the same clinic, and that clinic is as secure as a military base. He wants to break in. He wants John to help him to figure out what's going on. And so they do. Uh, James is also along, and we know it's to John and Michael. He's stowed away in John's truck. And inside, it's super shady. There are doctor records for all the patients who go here. There are embryos of various species and jars of green liquid. It gets mad sciencey almost immediately. And Doc Ponytail, I mean Edwin Martinick, catches them by surprise and just immediately villain explains, yeah, he's been trying to clone organs and animals from irradiated DNA, including including that of the local Apache cancer patients who he's been irradiating at times unnecessarily. 
Yeah, he's been falsifying cancer diagnoses, so he has an excuse to expose people to high doses of radiation and see what happens. Yeah, this guy super sucks. Yeah, he's, he's extra terrible. And later, of course, we'll find out why. He mentions working for someone who wants to control the next generation of mutants. Yeah, later we find out he's working for freaking Strife. Ugh. The worst. Maybe the second worst. I guess Cameron Hodge is pretty bad, too. True, true. And just like in his later appearance, Martinek turns into a big coyote werewolf thingy because he's been experimenting on himself as well. There's a big fight, and he ends up blowing up the entire lab to cover up the evidence of what's been going on here. We neglected to mention, I just realized, that at the circus, uh, John also fights a tiger. Oh yeah, John fights a tiger. It's a whole thing. So, so there's some precedent to him, like, realizing he has super strength and fighting large toothy things. <laughs> there is that. So, yeah, it turns out a lot of the folks who were diagnosed with cancer by this clinic, including Ma Proudstark, don't actually have it. Bit of a happy ending. Yay! And the boys fight and play and all is well. And I like this. I like that we get a happy ending here, that everything is fine. It makes the later tragedy of John's death and James's rage at that death all the more effective, knowing the sort of idyllic youth that they had together. Yeah, this is one of those places where the future makes a flashback really effective. Like, this is the kind of flashback that works because what we know is going to happen renders that happy ending really bittersweet and gives it a lot more depth than it would otherwise have. Yeah, and I mentioned this before, but once again, I think this issue pairs exceptionally well with Giant Size X-Men Thunderbird from just a year or two ago. So our, our final issue today is X-Men Minus One, I Had a Dream. Ooh, that title. Uh, written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Carlos Pacheco, inked by Art Tiber, colored by Chris Leitner and Aaron Lucen, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft and Coleofuse. And in the framing story, which is set in the Marvel editorial bullpen, seeing Carlos Pacheco hanging out, working hard, falling asleep at his desk, I, I got a little choked up, because of course, Carlos Pacheco just died not too long ago. Yeah. So as for this issue, we're running out of time, but honestly, this issue is called I Had a Dream, and it also opens with Charles Xavier nude in space, and honestly, I feel like I could stop there and you'd pretty much be able to extrapolate the rest. No, no, we should talk about it. Fine, he's not in space, he's actually in a swimming pool that is reflecting space, so that's the first plot twist. He's hanging out with Amelia Vogt. Amelia um, Vogt was his girlfriend pre-X-Men. She is a mutant teleporter uh, who can also transmute her body into mist, and I guess other things into mist as well. Um, she also goes swimming in a negligee and robe in this scene. I can't tell if Xavier is naked or wearing a tiny Speedo. I think he's either wearing a tiny Speedo, or the shadows are very, very specifically targeted. I mean, it's his pool. Like, he can he can wear or not wear what he wants in it. Um, but Amelia is frustrated that Xavier is too obsessed with his own powers and his goal of saving the world. And she came home with him um, from, yeah, after after they met, partly because she loves him, but partly because she wanted to convince him to give up on that bullshit and just live his life. And in fact, as we find out in Uncanny X-Men number 309, the initial backstory of the two of them, it was after he took Scott Summers in and started his school that she left that she decided she didn't want any part of this she will of course later go on to be one of magneto's acolytes and then a lot of other stuff will happen i really like amelia vote as a character it seems kind of weird to me that she and professor x haven't really overlapped in the Krokoan era like she was kind of his first great love right well maybe more like third or so but still early on miles i know like we're cool but a lot of people don't stay in close touch with their exes 
that's valid, but also it's X-Men. Any possible opportunity for drama is generally mined. No, that's that's an extremely valid point. Yeah. So speaking speaking of mining for drama, meanwhile in space, Magneto is having some feelings. He is actually in space, not a swimming pool. He is an asteroid M. And this is the one that Wanda is going to destroy in Uncanny X-Men number five, that will also later become the island of Utopia near San Francisco after the X-Club raises it up from um, its its watery apparent grave. Because remember, just about all of these issues are set before the Silver Age, or at least well before the characters in question really get involved with anything X-related. And Wanda and Peter are actually with him at this point. Um, at, and for now, they don't know that he's maybe their dad, just that he's some weirdo who rescued them from one of Marvel's many European mobs. And they're a little weirded out by this, this extremely fanatic man who lives in space. Fair enough, right? But I do like this. I do like that well before there are X-Men, well before there's a brotherhood of evil mutants, Professor X and Magneto have both been through some shit, but Professor X has an intense emotional connection. That's what helps him get through his pain. He has Amelia. Magneto could have a connection. I mean, ironically, these are his children, kind of, depending on retcons, who are with him. His on-again, off-again children. Yes, but he refuses to connect with him. And he's out in freaking space. Like, how ungrounded can you get? This issue is full of metaphors. It's all about comparing and contrasting Xavier and Magneto, and everything that happens, every element of the story, is in service to that. Hmm. I think you just nailed part of what rubs me a little weird about this, is that it feels like an essay rather than a story or a tone poem. That's fair, yeah. I mean, we have a story like the X-Force issue we just covered that has tons of plot, and the character development comes from that plot. And with this, you're right, it's sort of more just the characters being described and describing themselves and each other to one another. So Charles has Amelia teleport them to Auschwitz and talks about how this day, you know, this place, but also this day has profound significance for Magneto. And I'm not sure we ever actually find out why in the issue. I might have missed it. And Marvel.Fandom.com says it's the anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz, but I'm not sure the comic ever actually explicitly says that. Because, of course, Xavier and Magneto know each other. They're old friends who have had a falling out after a big brick of gold and Israel and Baron Strucker getting involved. It was a whole thing. And Magneto grew up in the, the concentration camps in Germany. Xavier is well aware of this. So Magneto does, in fact, also make an appearance, and Xavier opens the conversation with one of the best low-key burns I've ever read. Just like, hello, Eric. Nice helmet. Which is funny, but not nearly as funny as Magneto's reply. Don't change the subject, Xavier. From what? It's literally the first thing either of them said to the other. Okay, you know what? I buy this. Because Xavier and Magneto have known each other for so goddamn long that I can imagine they've already both started the conversation in their heads well before either of them got there. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's well explained. Um, Speaking of exes. There's a lot of juxtaposition of their profiles as they debate in vague and philosophical terms. You do not belong here. Nobody belongs here. You know that better than anyone. This place should never have been built. It is a giant scar on the face of humanity, an affront to the very meaning of life itself. But the truth is, its very existence should be enough to steer you from this course you have chosen for yourself. 
that's why Xavier is here. He's trying to convince Magneto to not become essentially a mutant supremacist, to not perpetuate the violence that he grew up on just in a different direction. Magneto is apparently on his way because he's at least real fucking ableist here. He also knows who Amelia Vote is because he and Charles have been keeping close tabs on each other. And as is usual in their conversations in this era, they essentially close on on a wistful but antagonistic note. Enough. We're wasting each other's time. Would that we could agree to disagree, but that's not going to happen. I should kill you here and now. You understand that, don't you? Of course. And I should reach into your mind. Change it. Turn it off. Shut it down. But I won't. This is not over, Professor X. Magneto hasn't even begun. Another call forward there. Xavier will, of course, do exactly what he describes and shut down Magneto's mind at the end of Fatal Attractions. For me, this works. For me, the idea that these two men have been orbiting each other opposed from almost the very beginning of their histories as large figures in the mutant world, I like it. I know this issue is kind of ham-handed. I will certainly not debate that, but it just feels iconic in a way that works for me. It's fine. I think I have trouble with it because every single other one of the minus one issues breaks new ground, and this one really doesn't. It, it retreads a lot of space that we've been to a lot before, and obviously a lot since, although that couldn't have been anticipated. So here's my take on that. We have two books called X-Men. We have Uncanny X-Men and we have Adjectiveless X-Men. Uncanny X-Men Minus One is this big backstory thing about the Trasks, about Rachel Summers, about Madame Sanctity, about the origin of the Twelve. It does break new ground. Stupid new ground, we'll later find out when the Twelve actually happens, but still new ground. So I feel like if you have one X-Men book doing that, you kind of can use the other for just this, like you described it, tone poem about these two founding figures of X-Men mythology. I just, I still object to the way that the two titles are treated as the same book. I think that's, that's part of my issue here. So that I, I don't see them as necessarily always having to be taken in concert. The idea that books should be, that the different series should be that inextricably linked is one that I really chafe against and have historically. Well, that's reasonable. Thankfully, we're entering an era where we'll have two very distinct voices between the two X-Men books. Uh, briefly, before everything goes to hell again. So there you have it. Eight of the nine flashback minus one X-Books. Jay, if you had to pick a favorite, what do you think your favorite would be? Easily X-Force. X-Force was really good. And I'm actually going to go to X-Force's semi-sibling for my favorite. I really liked the Cable one-shot. Part of that may just be that I love the creative team Cable has at this point. But I thought it was really fun, added some neat new stuff, and had just some phenomenal art. Meanwhile, you've got questions. An anonymous listener asked on Tumblr, Who is dead last very bottom of the list in the Krakoa-era resurrection queue? Deadpool. <laughs> Uh, no, I'm, I'm going to say, I'm actually, I'm going to go with Strife, because no, literally nobody likes Strife. Well, also, Strife is from an alternate timeline and is a clone, both of which have sometimes been used to disqualify people from Resurrection, but I agree, mostly he's just the absolute worst. Although, wait, the, I, so I'm way behind, but they can resurrect humans now, right? Uh, they can, yes. Okay, so I'm actually going to go with Rick, Dick, and Vic Chalker, because nobody remembering them would be a great continuation of that game. Oh, those three brothers from Peter David's X-Factor who were trying to kill X-Factor but killed themselves accidentally before they even got to meet them? 
Exactly. <laughs> Speaking of forgetting characters, I was going to say forget-me-not, since it's mutant powers to constantly be forgotten, but actually Forge invented a device on Krakoa to help people remember him. So instead, I'm going to say any member of the Ecstatics or Excellent teams, because aside from Dupe, the X-Books absolutely refuse to acknowledge that they exist. So Ethan emailed us to ask, My family and I usually travel to my grandparents' house for Thanksgiving and Christmas. On those car trips, my mom or sister will usually play a podcast episode or two. Generally, it's something from NPR, like This American Life. I wanted to take a turn and play an episode of your show this year. What's a good single episode of the show, preferably a standard-length one, that doesn't require a whole lot of context and would be interesting to fans of different levels? I'm the biggest X fan, my dad knows quite a bit about the X-Men, my sister knows some, and my mom doesn't know very much about the universe at all. I'd love to know your recommendations. So this answer required a fair bit of going back through our old episodes, which was actually a great deal of fun. So thank you for asking the question, even if it took a really long time to go through them, because we've made a lot of episodes. And we settled on three different categories, depending on what you're going for. So I guess let's take them weirdly in episode order. The first category is continuity-based stories that nonetheless work pretty well without knowing much in the way of continuity. So those are episode 19, Acorn's Swords, which looks at the magic miniseries, and episode 32, Off the Map, which examines the Demon Bear Saga. There are also standalone miniseries that require zero continuity knowledge and are really fun or just really good in various ways. For those, we've got episode 77, Die Hard with a Lobster, which looks at Fallen Angels, episode 114, Meltdown, which looks at Havoc and Wolverine Meltdown, and episode 162, Naked in Canada, which is your window into Weapon X. Then we have the third category, which are goofy Wolverine-adjacent stories. All right, we've got episode 247, The Butt Kick Scale, which is also technically a miniseries um, episode as it looks at the Sabretooth series. And episode 346, Romancing the Gehenna Stone, which looks into some of Peter David's Wolverine. As far as a worst possible episode for this, I was trying to think of what, and I'm going to say episode 259, Quan Leap, which is such a horrifying tangle of Psylocke's backstory that it would be utterly incoherent to anyone not steeped in X-Men knowledge. And if you just want to get really weird and not even bother with the X-Men... The Hawk Talk episode we did, Call Any Vegetable, where we started talking about vegetables and then just gradually lost our minds, that could be a fun one. We are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. So, after a long absence, let's turn it over to the angry Claremontian narrator. Amber. John R. How is anyone supposed to learn from the past if you keep freaking changing it? What, what's supposed to be the lesson here? That nothing is certain, or just that nobody should be relying on you personally for anything that matters? Yeah, kind of thought as much. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for a visual companion to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay in the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. Next week, X-Factor presents an object lesson about putting villains on your team. Don't do it. Don't do it.